Do worry and anxiety consume you at times? Today, we have special guest Dr. Gary Habermas on to discuss how to deal with worry and anxiety using scripture. And that's what we'll be discussing today on Christ, Culture, and Coffee. This is Christ, Culture, and Coffee, a podcast designed to help equip Christians to be able to defend their faith and be confident in their faith. Hello, welcome to Christ, Culture, and Coffee. I'm Robbie Lashua, and I'm here with my awesome and amazing co-host, Tyler Hurley. Thank you, Robbie. Anytime. I always like to be nice to you. <laughs> well, I'm excited because today we have a very special guest, Dr. Gary Habermas. Yeah, I am... Yes. I, yes. I'm excited doesn't even begin to state what I am. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> yeah. Th- yeah. This guy, he's legit. He's super cool. Like we we've we personally met him. Yeah, at a conference a couple of years ago. Yeah. We met him. He spoke on doubt, actually, the, the topic of today about anxiety and worry and how mm-hmm. to deal with it. Um, but I have for a long time read his books. Uh, I've had professors who were kind of mentored and discipled by him. Mm, um, yeah. so this guy uh, is just amazing. Um, if you don't know who he is. Gary Habermas is uh, 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 at Liberty uh, University in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the chair Department of Philosophy and Theology. Um, he uh, has been working at Liberty since 1981, done a ton of stuff, but <laughs> he is an expert on the resurrection of Jesus. That yeah. is his expertise. Yeah, I read his book, uh, The Case for the Resurrection of oh, Jesus. With love Michael that Lecon- book. Yeah. That's one of his best. Yeah, him and Michael Lacona co-wrote that book. Yeah, it's fantastic. It is fantastic. If you haven't read that, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, he is the author of over 40 books. 40, Tyler. Four zero. Four zero. Yeah, 40. <laughs> um, the Case yeah. for the Resurrection is one of my favorites. A couple of other ones I read that I really like by him. Um, he, he co-wrote a, a, a book with J.P. Moreland called Beyond Death, Exploring the Evidence for Immortality. <laughs> and it's on near-death experiences. Uh, fascinating. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's great. Also, um, he was an editor along with Doug Gavette uh, of a book called In Defense of Miracles, A Comprehensive Case for God's Action in History. Hmm. Highly recommend that too. Like, can we make a case for miracles being um, probable, right? Mm, and plausible yeah. in in this universe, in our world. And then one of the books that um, is actually free on his website on uh, GaryHabermas.com is called The Thomas Factor, Using Your Doubts to Draw Closer to God. Mm. And I, I, I love this book. I think I downloaded it uh, probably like five, six years ago now. Um, but it's just been very instrumental in, in me and, and, and um, my, my, me dealing with my own doubts. Mm. Um, it's been so helpful. He, and that's what we're going to talk about with him uh, today on the show. But in addition to those 40 books, um, he is the author of over 70 chapters, essays, or articles in additional books. He has over 100 articles in um, academic journals and magazines. He's taught at over 15 graduate schools as an adjunct professor, mm. and he's given over 2,000 lectures at 100 universities, colleges, seminaries, and churches. And as you were mentioning, uh, we saw him at one of those when we were at uh, New Orleans Baptist yes. Theological Seminary. Yep, and uh, we saw him present on uh, doubt and on resurrection. And yeah, it's just so fantastic. Good. Yep. Yeah, he's a great speaker. Uh, Dr. Habermas, thank mm. you so much for being with us today. Yes, thank you. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it, guys. It's a good topic, good situation. I'm in Virginia. You know, it's warm enough, but thank you guys are in, in uh, Phoenix. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're, staying, we're staying warm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, we're really suffering out here right now. But another month, yeah. and hopefully it'll be nice. 
<laughs> well, good. Okay. Well, we've been we've been going through a series about the last few weeks on doubt and talking about uh, how right. Christians have doubts and and what we should do with our doubts. And we even last week we answered some of our uh, Facebook groups questions that they had about Christianity and doubts they've had. But we wanted you to come on and kind of explain from your perspective uh, because you you've written a great book on this, The Thomas Factor. Uh, I love that book. It's helped me uh, work through doubts in my own life. And so in in that book you list three different types of doubt. Could you briefly go over the three different kinds and explain to us how we can identify uh, the types of doubt we're experiencing. Sure. Well, I hypo- kind of hypothesized there, and by the way, an earlier book, before that one came out, totally different book, but mm-hmm. another book called Dealing with Doubt, I do a little more of the theory on those three, mm-hmm. and I have a you know long chapter on each one. And the three, I call them factual slash philosophical. So these are the intellectual questions. Christianity could be how do we know the resurrection happened? It could be why do bad things happen to good people? Um, then, secondly, emotional doubt, mm-hmm. and th- this is kind of crazy. But the, the the three, the third one is volitional, and I could define those. But the way I do, the reason I do them in that order is because doubt often moves from one to the next to the next, mm. and the first one would be factual or emotional, sorry, factual or philosophical, the person would have intellectual questions about faith. And if their questions are met with, uh, you know, good answers, then they often stop right there, and they're happy, and they're stronger, and they're moving on. Mm -hmm. But if the questions don't get answered right away, there's a tendency, it's kind of a dirty word, but uh, there's a tendency for the doubt to kind of fester a little bit, like an infection does. And the doubt kind of works on them, and they sometimes, you know, here's an example. They might go, well, I've asked this question to everybody I know, and people I really respect, and my pastor couldn't answer me and everything else, and I prayed and prayed, and this really, really bothers me. I guess God doesn't care, because if God cared, he would have given me something for this. So um, it starts out with an, uh, an emotional aspect there where they get worked up. And the and the uh, doubt is painful, but if it's if it goes on more, if it festers even more, and sometimes they start getting kind of calloused, mm-hmm. and they go, "Great, he doesn't want to answer my prayers." Fine. And the third kind, volitional doubt, I often describe as a Christian saying to the Creator of the world. Uh, how about you stay in your half of the universe, and I'll stay in my half of the universe? I won't bother you if you don't bother me. Mm-hmm. And and it's sort of like, you know, a couple, a married couple, an old married couple, who are fighting. They don't get along, and and so that one, that stage is often characterized by anger. Okay. So the first stage, more tough questions. The second stage, it's a painful stage, an emotional stage, and the third one can morph to kind of a deadened, I just don't care anymore. And they say they don't care, but usually there's something underneath that they really do, but they're kind of calling out for help and nothing's happening, and they stagnate a little bit. So uh, those are the three, uh, factual, emotional, and volitional. Okay, and how, how would we uh, identify which, which ones we're going through? Well, I'll tell you what. It, it sounds like there's an lot of overlap, and there is. First, just a comment. 
the reason there's a lot of overlap is because we're whole persons. You know, we don't. First Corinthians twelve says it nicely. You know, the eye doesn't say to the to the ear, and the ear doesn't dictate to the stomach, and so on. We're whole persons, so mm-hmm. we can have pains in various areas of our body, and we can have a factual question that is mostly an emotional doubt, or we can have a factual or emotional doubt that we're starting to not care about anymore, which is kind of dangerous because it it could be morphing over to that evolutional one. Ba- basically what I'm saying, I know it sounds complicated, but what I'm saying is we are whole persons, and therefore pain often happens in more than one area. Okay. The, the first category, factual doubt, it is relatively simple uh, as doubt goes. So you could say, well, you tell me God's existence or the, why is there evil in the world? That's simple. Okay, I'm not saying the solution is simple, but factual doubt could be like a broken leg. It's not nice, but they're going to put you in a walking boot, and in you know a few weeks you're going to be good to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, that bone they may tell you is stronger than it was before. So factual doubt can be treated more easily because the answer is the facts, okay, and they're readily available. Now, someone says, well, I think I, here's what usually what I'm told when people contact me, and I've had uh, over 700 discussions now with doubters, and they'll say, well, I'm pretty sure I'm a factual doubter. And I'll say, well, let me ask you a question. Does it hurt? And they'll say, are you kidding me? It's the most painful thing in my life. It dominates, I just feel like saying stop. If it hurts, if it's really painful, it's definitely emotional. Okay. At least, you know, largely. And they'll go, well, no, I really don't know if I can answer this question or not. And I'll say it's kind of irrelevant. It doesn't really matter if you can answer the question or not. If it's hurting, it is going to a stage where you're getting emotional about it. Okay. So there's an example. Mm. So I would say two ways to tell if it's emotional doubt. Do you ask yourself what if questions? What if we're wrong? Mm. Well, well, wait a minute, what do you mean, what if we're wrong? Well, there's atheists in the world, and there's Muslims in the world, and there's Hindus in the world. What if we're wrong? I go, well, I just gave you ten reasons that you can believe in that. I know, but <laughs> what if we're wrong? Yeah. If you're trying to trump ten reasons with a single what if, that's one sign that it's uh, emotional. The other one I already made, mentioned, it hurts. Mm-hmm. That It's very painful. And that's because we only heard about things that really matter to us. So if you're hurting, that's a good sign in the sense that that means this is really important to you. The last one is the most dangerous one. It can be because a person who says you stay in your half of the universe or half of the house and I'll stay in my half of the house or universe is a dangerous time because you've got to move in there and kind of motivate somebody who doesn't want to be motivated. Hmm. And and that's the last one. The emotional doubters will take all your time if you let them do it. The volitional doubters don't want to talk to you. Okay, man. So it depends on what they're... It's not so much the question they're asking. It's the attitude with which they're asking it and how they're relating to the data. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Hmm. And so as Christians, we can go through all of these three stages as well, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. It, it takes a little bit of time usually, but you could morph through all three of these things in maybe, you know, two or three years mm-hmm. wondering about one subject, like a loss of a loved one. 
okay. or a divorce or a disease hmm. or doesn't God care about me. We can go down the path and go from one stage to another to another, just like a sickness can go down a path. Okay. Man, that's interesting. What would you say, out of these three, what is the most common of the three that you encounter? Um, emotional doubt is by far the most common. Okay. I would say I would say two things. Emotional doubt is the most common, and emotional doubt is the most painful. Hmm. So uh, the funny thing is, it's funny. It goes by gender. It goes by a lot of things. Men. Men will often say, my doubt is factual. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that's, you know, for a few reasons. We, 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 there, there's almost no trickier topic than this one, because doubt is not what anybody thinks it is. If, if they know what doubt is, that means they've done some study on it. Because okay. you, don't just, you don't just hear people talk about it and, oh, I know where you are. You're in stage two. You know, I mean, nobody knows <laughs> yeah, that stuff sure, yeah. until you get in there and listen to them. So guys think it's factual. Because they, cause all their issues are factual. They think all their issues are factual. And that's just how they're built. They'll go, I'm not emotional. And if somebody's standing behind them and knows them real, real well, they may, like, roll their eyes like, yeah, he's not emotional, <laughs> right? We sure. should see him win blank, whatever that is. Uh-huh. So guys can get emotional like everybody else. Um, my, my wife has a, little bit of, has a little saying about that. She says, she says at least women know they're emotional. <laughs> <laughs> and I, true, I, it's yeah. very simple but very important. Guys don't look that way. And when guys don't look for that kind of doubt, chances are they have no idea they're going through it. Yeah, and that so makes they sense. don't look for well yeah, it's a problem. It's like if you're gonna self medicate and you take something for your stomach, but it's not your stomach, you hmm. think it is, but it's not, you're not gonna get well as fast as the person who knows what it is they're taking it for. So yeah. Uh, you know, you have to take the right medicine for the right thing, and so it's very important to diagnose it correctly. Yeah, and and for us as as uh, Christians and as apologists in our own life, or even as we go out and and try to witness to people, assessing what type of doubt they have is a huge uh, huge aspect to uh, correctly uh, helping them with where they're at. And I think sometimes. I, I don't know for you, but for, for me, you know, you, you read a lot of apologetic stuff, you get excited about it, and you, you've got all these exactly. arguments, and then you go encounter people, and you just dump all of this knowledge on them, and that's not really what they're struggling with. It isn't factual. It's emotional. And uh, it's kind of oh, a yeah. waste of time almost <laughs> to do that if you don't know yeah, which like, type yeah, of doubt. You, right, exactly. Like the person that you just gave Ted evidences to, and they all, all they want to know is, why am I hurting? Yes, Yep, definitely. Yeah, so we have to be I think it's I think this is really important for us to be good witnesses for Jesus to identify where people are at. And that's one of the things that Jesus was really good at. When we read the gospels, we can see that he meets people where they're at, right? He doesn't have his agenda to go and uh, talk about a guy who could have dumped a lot of knowledge on everybody. And he does at times. <laughs> yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah. But he he, yeah. he cared for people in the process. Um, and I, I just yeah. think sometimes for myself, it's it's very easy to neglect that aspect of, of my witness. Yeah, that, that's good. Well said, huh? 
Yep. All right. Well, Tyler and I, uh, we were down in New Orleans a couple years ago, and we heard you give a great talk mm, yeah. on on doubt and how to deal with it. And so, Tyler, you have a right. question for for Dr. Habermas about that. Yeah, because you mentioned uh, in Philippians 4 uh, that there is a guide to dealing with doubt and processing it. That's what you talked about at the conference. So uh, do you want to kind of uh, just elaborate on what, what would you say the process is of dealing with doubt based off of Philippians 4? Well, okay. I would suggest uh, Philippians 4, uh, probably 15 different references in the book of Proverbs, mm-hmm. probably, well, for sure, whole chapters in the book of Psalms, where the topics in all three of these cases, Proverbs, Psalms, and Philippians 4, and other texts, um, I think they deal most directly with emotional doubt, the mm-hmm. most popular and most painful of doubt. And for the emotional doubter, if, if they say, well, I don't know the resurrection's true, and you kind of self-sufficiently say, well, that's because I gave, gave you 10 evidences from it, for it, you know, and so on. Um, they, they'll say, yeah, but it sounds good when you gave it, you know, in the sermon last week or whatever. <laughs> sounds good when you do it, but then when I get home alone, I think, what if, and what 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 will my Hindu friend say? And they'll go, oh, but that's not true because of this and that. And and I don't know how to answer that stuff. So the main thing with, with emotional doubt is to handle your emotions, to get on your emotions. So hmm. for the emotional doubt, this is one of those wrong turns if you, you know, you don't have your, your um, compass on and you're not, you're not following where they say to go and you think you know the way, but you're supposed to have made a right turn back there. It's a lot like that. They don't want. They say they want to hear the evidences, but they don't, and they want to know how to deal with what's hurting them. Mm-hmm. And so Philippians four is so good because it deals with our emotions and these texts and in Proverbs. Uh, they're so helpful because they do the same thing. Now I, I borrow a system from psychology that uh, Christian psychologists do this stuff all the time, but it's sometimes called the cognitive method. And the definition of the cognitive method, well, I I love C.S. Lewis. He says, Lewis says, learn to tell your emotions where to get off. (laughs) Uh, And he makes the comment that if you don't know how to tell your emotions to take a hike, he says, you can't be a good Christian. Hmm. You can't even be a good atheist. Hmm. You will be nothing but a creature dithering to and fro, dependent on the latest state of your digestion. Wow. And, and that's great. I mean, wow. it's, like, yeah. it's like, well, how do I help my doubt? And you go, well, I don't know. Which way is the wind blowing? It, it's <laughs> like, uh, you know, you have to deal with outside circumstances. And for the emotional doubter, Paul says there in 4.6, he starts out, and he says, be anxious for nothing. The Greek indicates that his listeners, the Philippians, were currently in a state of anxiety. Mm-hmm. They were anxious. Or, I mean, think about Peter, First Peter 5, 7, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. That's the, that's the word for anxiety, okay. casting your anxieties on him. Psalms and Proverbs, over and over again, anxieties. Mm. And, by the way, that's just one more little twist. If emotional doubt is the most common and the most painful, I'd say the most common species of emotional doubt subcategory now would be like um, anxious questions, like okay. what mm. if we're wrong? Hmm. Do you know you're wrong? No, but what if we are? 
what if there's no heaven? Do you know there's no heaven? <laughs> no. Do you have any evidences against heaven? No. Then why are you nervous? Well, because this is kind of important to me. Mm-hmm. How do I know? And and so what you deal there is it doesn't help me to give you ten more evidences for heaven, at it or like you know hit the resurrection. I have to tell you, to use Lewis's words, how to tell your emotions where to get off. And mm-hmm. you do that. Verse six, Paul starts and he says, uh, "Be anxious for nothing, but in all things," he says, "pray." Now I'll be honest with you. Of the steps here, this is probably the most difficult one for me. I try to spend time in prayer every day, but prayer is hard for me because, you know, some people say, why worry when you can pray? I say, you know, for a lot of people, it's why I pray when you can worry. Um, <laughs> sure. Because that's how we're built, right? It's and more natural we, to worry, yeah. But we are. We are. So Paul says, uh, be anxious for nothing, and he says, give everything to God. And in that first verse, he says, with... Uh, Thanksgiving. Now, I make this a separate step. I break this one out separately because it's so powerful. The first part of it is pray. Peter says the same thing, casting all your cares on him. But then Paul says whatever, he'll later say in verse 8, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy. But here he says, with, with Thanksgiving. You can look at surveys and charts, and people who are learning to be thankful and who prays. Praise is one of the best antidotes to worry. And I'm often speaking on these subjects, and then, you know, I have a pretty big crowd. There might be a, a thousand people there or something, and, and we're, I'm talking about uh, anxiety. And I don't rehearse with these people before I come out on stage, obviously. And I'll say, because we can get through it quickly, and I've done a lot of times, I'll say, how many of you are, um, when you're doubting, you're going through a really rough time, and it just happens to be time to grab your coat and hat, and that doesn't happen much in Phoenix, but grab your <laughs> coat and hat and, and walk out the door because it's time for church. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll say to people, um, how many of you in a worked-up state have spent as much as 10 minutes praising or thinking? And hands go up all over. And I'll say, now, folks, obviously, we haven't rehearsed this. You haven't seen me before, and But somebody give me testimonies, and amazingly, almost all the comments are the same. They're related. I'll say, okay, what happens to your emotions? And somebody will say, well, praise helps me think about God and not about myself. And I'll say, all right, that's a really good start. What else? And somebody else will say, "Um, when I start praising, my anxiety level goes down. Hmm. Now, that's good. That's good. Why? And they'll go, well... Because, you know, I'm directing my praise to God, and he's the creator of the universe. Okay, that makes sense. And and here's the answer I look for. Here's the one I like. It usually doesn't take very many hands. Somebody will say, I begin looking at my issues from God's perspective. Okay. I look at my doubt from God's perspective. And I'll say, Mm. well, that sounds important. If If you could change your perspective to God's, wow. Okay, now what if you practice this stuff? Because Paul says, pray with thanksgiving, and then in verse 8, I kind of call it a goody-two-shoes verse, (laughs) Paul says, don't think about those subjects from verse 6 that were causing you anxiety. Think about different subjects, like what? Well, and you know, if you look it up in the Greek, or if you look it up in translations, it's 
the, the words always change a little bit, just like when you look up a definition of a word in dictionary. Mm-hmm. It, it, think about things that are good, that are honest, that are virtuous, that are trustworthy, that, you know, direct us to God's promises. That And then Paul ends with the words in verse 8, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. So mm-hmm. again, that's the second time this topic of Thanksgiving or praise has come yeah. up, and I know they're different things, but... Mm-hmm. And then Paul says, think on these things. If you look that word up in Greek, even if you don't know Greek, if you go to one of the Greek helps that tell you what the word means, that word is often translated meditate. And to meditate means to think deeply and single-mindedly on a subject. So Paul says, number one, pray. Number two, don't forget to give thanks. Have, Have a little bit of Thanksgiving here. Three, change your thinking from anxious thoughts to God's thoughts, uh, you know, God never breaks a promise. Think mm-hmm. about his promises, for example. Think about eternal life and meditate on that. And then the last one is verse 9. He says, um, whatever you've seen in me, do those things. So then the last step is keep at it, do it. And the Greek word there means uh, repeat, okay. repetitive. This should be something you do all the time. So we talk about taking the bull by the horns. We talk, we talk about uh, telling your emotions where to get off. It, it's a repetitive thing where you have to take control, and you tell yourself what you're going to think, not letting your emotions dictate to you what you're going to think. So mm-hmm. instead of the what-ifs, I mean, I mean, just a crazy little example. You go, well, someone said to me, how do I know there's a heaven? I, I might say, in front of people, just to make the point, I might say, well, how do you know there isn't? Well, yeah, I get you, but how do you know there is? How do you know there isn't? Well, I didn't say there wasn't. I get you, but obviously you're asking questions. So, And I'm trying to show them they're asking, how do I know a, there's a heaven, is no more valuable than my asking them, how do you know there isn't? Yeah. I mean, that is nothing but on the—that's like name-calling with people. <laughs> it's like you're just, you're just trying to—well, how do we know it's there? How do you know it isn't? Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so you stop me for a minute, and I think about it. I'm not really producing any reasons. I don't know why there's no I don't know why there's none. I just want to know there is. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't want evidences, right? Yeah. No, I've had enough evidences. I just want to know how to get this sick feeling out of my stomach when I think about what if I'm going to hell. Hmm. Well, of course you have a sick feeling when you think about going to hell because you told yourself that there's a hell and you may be there and it's not a nice thought because this is a nice, it's like you sitting there thinking, what if one of my children die in a car accident today? Mm-hmm. Oh, I get that same sick feeling in my stomach. Yeah, exactly. That's because anxiety is no respecter of persons. So things that are really important to you, you're going to keep coming back to them. You don't need to have reasons why they're not going to die in a car accident. You need to have reasons for how it can control your thoughts so you're not going down that that lane. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And as you're talking about emotions, and I, I couldn't help but think about, it, it seems to me like in, in our culture, so many people really are just victims of their emotions. Mm. And whatever they feel is truth for them. Sure. And it's where they go and it's what they do. And so what Paul's saying in scripture and what, what you're describing is so countercultural. To what to what we see going on and how people even make decisions, you know, in, in right. our times with, with these things. Emotion seems to take people away uh, a lot. And, I mean, we've all seen how it really damages people, right? If I live through what I feel, 
I mean, I'd be dead by now if I did that. <laughs> I always yeah, did exactly what I feel. Right. So, yeah, this this is great. Um, so important for us to take uh, and, and and use our minds to take control mm. of our emotions, right? Is that is that kind of how you'd say you have to that, stop yourself? Correct. What's called cognitive therapy, a simple definition would be using your your brain, using your thoughts to control using what you know and using what you've learned to counteract how you feel. Mm-hmm. And you're telling yourself what you're going to feel and what you're not going to feel as opposed to, I mean, literally, which way is the wind blowing? If mm-hmm. you listen to your emotions and you do whatever, what if, what if comes to your mind, when, you know, we know people who go from what if there's a car accident to what if I have cancer. Mm-hmm. In the 60s, it was what if Russia pushes the button. Mm-hmm. Today, it might be, well, 15 years ago, it might be what if I get AIDS. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, it could be a, a variety of things, but we live in a world where, oh, wow, don't touch that. There's germs. Oh, no, my kid's getting ready to go to school. What if they get taken over by blank? Mm-hmm. We, we can invent as many horrible situations as our mind can think of. Yeah. And if your faith is important to you, just like your children's health, for example, if your faith is important to you, it, your what-ifs are going to alight on what you believe and what's in your heart. If someone said to you, hey, what if the New England Patriots don't win the Super Bowl this year? And you go, mm-hmm. well, I could care less. I hate the Patriots. Yeah, Guess yep. what? you're not going to have any anxiety about whether this, the Patriots are going to win the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. But you might have anxiety about whether your team's going to do good. Sure. Do, do, you know, <laughs> do well. So w- we worry about things that we care about. And then I look across the table at doubters who come to talk to me, and they'll say, if I only knew that I love God. Hmm. So I'd say, are you kidding me? You wouldn't be here if you didn't love God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, what do you do? Do you worry about the Patriots? No, I don't even like football. Okay, well, get a grip. I mean, <laughs> you know, you're not worried about the Patriots. You're not a football fan, but you are worried about your emotions because why? About your faith because why? Yeah, because God's important. Well, I guess I want to go to heaven. Oh, you want to say that again? <laughs> I guess I'd like to know I'm going to heaven. Is that really important to you? Yeah, it's like the most important thing in my life. And I and you go bingo. Yeah. That's why you're here. Yeah, that's That's great. why you're talking to me. Yeah, so worry you, you can be... You already know you love God. Yes, worry can be an evidence. What we're worrying about proves yeah. that it's important to us. No, that's great. Sure. Yeah, so sure. many people, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've met too. As a pastor, I meet so many people who worry about their assurance, right? Mm. Am I really going to heaven? What about when I was yes. a kid? And did I commit the yes. unpardonable sin? And that would fall right into this category. If yeah. you're worried about it, it's important to you. And it kind of proves, no, nah, you, you do believe in Jesus. Yeah, now, now, when you read the old commentaries from the old days, I can tell you, because I worked through that issue, because, I mean, so many people came up to me, and I, I finally had to, you know, kind of buckle down and, and learn a little bit on that subject. And and believe me, the what-if people can come up with, with what-ifs on this. But the old commentaries will tell you, they'll say, um, are you worried about committing the unpardonable sin? Every day. Um do you fret over whether this or that might have crossed the line? Yep. Would you say you're sensitive to God's leading and so on in your life? Mm. I would say so, uh, for sure. Are you trying to follow him? Well, I want to. Well, look, hey, how do you think you can—how could all those things be true? 
and the Holy Spirit not be working in your heart. I mean, do you think <laughs> conviction yeah. comes because you're a naturally convicted person? No. And you always do right things? Or do you think conviction comes because you've been, you know, you've come to the Lord? And, and, and so basically the old commentaries say, if you're convicted, how about when you sin? How about let's go the opposite way? Instead of saying, do you have a checklist of all the things that make you sh- assured of your faith? How about going the other way? Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens if you really blow it and you know you've, cross the line and God's not happy with you. Oh, man, I feel blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, see, that's called conviction, mm. and conviction is very important. So uh, you, you can argue in reverse, in reverse psychology. You can, yeah, it's all, it's all important, but conviction is, is one of the signs. Yeah, that makes sense. following the Lord. Yes, so. yeah, if you feel convicted, it's because the Lord's convicting you. Mm. <laughs> the Spirit's yeah. at work in you, yeah. It that's, uh... It's not a normal thing in human nature to be convicted and to want to make things right. That's a very mm-hmm. rare person who wants to make things right and frets over somebody they may have hurt. Yeah, man, that's such a good point. So, that's so helpful. Wow. Well, I, I obviously I've read a lot of your books, um, and um, one of the one of the first apologetics books I read years ago was Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, and he interviews right. you in that book, you know, and um, you kind of shared your story. Um, but could right. you could you give us a background on on how you've personally dealt with doubt in your own life and times where you've experienced doubt and what's helped you? Yeah, yeah, you know, you guys are, we're, we're talking about this now, and, and I get, the, when I start, talk, when I do interviews on this subject, people will say to me, so, uh, tell me something, did you get into this subject because you, why'd you get into the resurrection? Did you get into the resurrection because you wanted to help people with this? And I'll go, <laughs> okay, that's cute. Um, uh, yeah, I could, I wish I could say I got into the resurrection because I was altruistic, and I care about you. You know, well, I mean, I hope that's true. But I got into doubt. And in the old days, I would have said, frankly, I don't care what you're going through. I am worried about my doubt. And I was answering my own questions. So, yeah, I spent 10 years going through doubt straight, where it was the biggest sports and doubt. Schoolwork was way down the line. Um, but uh, when I was in college and, and later, um, it was sports and doubting, and that's why I settled on the resurrection, because it answers so many things. So uh, it was the dominating thing of my life. And then what, what turned, what I wished, the one thing I wish somebody would have sat, sat me down and said to me in those days, like I started reading Rudolph Boltman when I was 18, oh, and wow. he was the hottest liberal at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was just very difficult. And I picked up his books in the, in the secular bookstore, and I started reading them, and they just, you know, he put me my stomach in a lot of knots. Well, I wish somebody would have sat me down and said, you are way past the factual stage. You're looking for facts, 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 facts that Boltman is wrong, and you're what-ifing everything. Hmm. Let me talk to you. Forget it. Forget apologetics. Let me talk to you about keeping your emotions in check. Hmm. And that's the lesson I wished I had learned when I was going to college, wow. I didn't learn it till years and years later when I had a crisis. And what I thought you were going to ask me about was uh, in 1995, my wife and the mother of my four children uh, died of stomach cancer. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, ju- just before she got sick, I had learned some things 
that I could use for counseling people about emotional doubt. And it was this cognitive stuff, telling your emotions where to get off. So I applied it to myself while my wife was dying. And in the months later, when my kids needed lunches every day and their clothes washed and I was teaching full time and yeah, I'm not saying I'm anybody special whatsoever because I'm so bad at it so many times, but I needed something like that to order my own life when when I was going through the worst. In my, in my mind, when I was going through what was the worst possible thing anybody could go through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, that sounds so tough. And um, I've seen interviews with you talk about that and read the books, you know, mm-hmm. where, you, where you discuss that. And um, it just right. always impressed me how... Yeah, what what the Lord's done, what He taught you, and then how to control your emotions through it is something that you could manage. Not and again, not to say obviously you didn't hurt through that. You did, and you grieved through that, and it was horrible. Um, but at the same time, it didn't bring a huge crisis mm. of faith into your life because you knew how to deal with it. Not not just apologetically, not just with intellect, but how to deal with your emotions. I think that is so important for all of us uh, as we're walking through life, because there will be times. Uh, we, we will go through hard times. It's a guarantee, right? Everybody yeah. is, is going to suffer. Everybody yeah. is going to experience loved ones dying. Uh, everyone's going to die. Uh, and um, we need to know, okay, Lord, h- how do I manage this? H- how, do I, how do I walk through this? How do I honor and glorify you through the tough times to the best I can? Not, not um, avoiding pain, but walking through the valley, right? Through the valley of the shadow of death with the Lord with us. So I really appreciate uh, you sharing that. That is just, that is so important for us as Christians to, to be able to know how to handle that when it comes, because it will come. It will. No, that, that's very wise. We all go through things, and it hits you. You know, sometimes they say it hits you in the pocketbook. Well, I think hitting you in the pocketbook is easy compared to hitting you in the core of your being, where every day everything is on the line anxiety, and you're wondering if there's any meaning in life. To me, that's the worst kind of issue there could be. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yep. Well, hey, um, changing subjects a little bit, because uh, I'm interested in, in hearing about this, if you wouldn't mind. Um, could you talk a little bit about your relationship with Anthony Flew and, and how God used you in his life and kind of what transpired with, with his thought? Uh, for our listeners, uh, Anthony Flew was a really dominant figure in uh, philosophy of religion, uh, and he was one of the most influential atheist philosophers of the 20th century. Uh, and he lectured at University of Oxford, University of Aberdeen, was a really big player. Uh, but then, uh, Dr. Habermas, you became friends with him, and, yeah. and God kind of yeah. used, used you and apologetics in his life. Could, you, could mm-hmm. you kind of explain to us how that went? Yeah. yeah. You know, the crazy thing was I, I, I didn't bump into him. I went to a conference where there was a series of debates between atheists and, and Christians that happened in Dallas. Uh, years ago, many years ago, hmm. and like the top atheists seemed to be, seemed to be all the top atheists were there, and all the top Christian scholars were there, and they went head to head. And in one weekend, there were depending on how you count them. I mean, how do you count a debate where it's four on four? Is that one debate <laughs> or is that four debates? Sure. Um, but there were a lot that weekend, wall to wall debates for the whole weekend, and Anthony Flew was one of the guys that came. And I had studied him for years, so I mean, there's no doubt. Uh, I, I, you know, I knew who he was. It mm-hmm. wasn't like, oh wow, this guy. I don't know who this guy is, but he must really be big. It wasn't that at all. It was like, oh my gosh, that's Anthony Flew over there. <laughs> uh, because as a friend of mine said, 
he's he said uh, you couldn't get through philosophy classes, you couldn't get through philosophy religion courses, you couldn't get through in Christian schools, you couldn't do apologetics without reading Anthony Flew. There's mm-hmm. so many things he's very well known for. And that first night that I met him, another friend, Terry Meethy and I were uh, were there with him, and we were sitting there, and we're going, hey, what are you doing for dinner? And I, I don't know. Now, why don't we go out to dinner? Yeah, okay, fine. So the three of us, there was another person, but we all went out to dinner, and over the table, (laughs) he and I got in a discussion about the resurrection. Hmm. And he is famous, very, very, very nice guy, for sure. But he is very well known in this area of which the resurrection would be located, because in the famous, uh, I think, eight-volume Encyclopedia of Philosophy, he wrote the essay on miracles. Now, why do you have an atheist write this write them, uh, article on, on miracles? Because he's Anthony Flew, that's why. <laughs> because he, he's, the, he's the big name. Yeah. And so we're going at it over the table, and my friend Terry said, whoa, 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 whoa. Guys, this discussion is great. This is fantastic. But let's not go any further. He said, Tony, that we were, he said, call me Tony, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony, let me ask you a question. Would you be willing to come to Liberty University, and just as soon as we can arrange it, I think this was March of, um, oh man, i got to go back and think about this, 1985. Mm. And we said, would you come to Liberty and debate Gary on the resurrection? And he said, sure. Wow. I'd be glad to. And And the guy said, Terry said, Gary? And I said, absolutely, absolutely, I'm willing to do this. So right away we got back, and it became a university-wide event on campus. <laughs> and he flew in, and and it was fantastic. And uh, by the way, he and I became very good friends, but that was the first of three debates. He and I debated on the resurrection three times. Hmm. I mean, formal, you know, formal debates. You have yeah. so long to talk, you have so long to talk. Sure. And um, one was at Liberty, one was on national television, and the other one was at a secular university um, as a Veritas Forum okay. event. And so, yeah, so the, a friendship developed, and it was toward the end of his life. I mean, I was calling him every month or two, you know, and we would just talk. Uh, what do you think about what, what uh, you know, our president did or your you know, you know anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going on in the country? What about uh, politics? What about this or that? We're talking about everything under the sun, like friends do. And uh, man, I I talked to him so often about the plan of salvation. But anyway, he announced. I think it was two thousand and four. He announced that he had become a theist. <laughs> wow, that, that's huge. Oh, it, it was. It was. And the first time he ever did it, it was a year earlier. I called him. I said, Tony. I've been hearing stuff that you become a theist. Yeah, 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 I, I think I've become a theist. I, th- I think I'm there. And then a, he goes, hey, listen, can you call me another time? I've got a deadline to write, a publishing deadline. I said, sure. I called him back about a week or two later, and as I recall, he said, yeah, I'm not a theist anymore. <laughs> I, I really wasn't where I thought I was. I'm, I'm really an atheist. Okay. I said, well, I said, well, you were a theist two weeks ago. He go, He just, we just cut up, and we were laughing, and he goes, he goes, yeah, I'm an atheist with big questions. I said, okay, well, that's good. A year later, he said, 
I'm an I'm a theist, and this is for good. I've seen hmm. problems in atheism, enough of them. And he told the world he was a a, a, a theist. So I, I he sometimes would use the word deist, and he sometimes used the word theist. But I interviewed him, and it and it became a, it was the name of an article, my pilgrimage from atheism to theism, mm -hmm. and it was a discussion between the two of us. So I think that was published in 04, 2004. Wow. That is amazing. With with him, um, and and I don't know if you, if you would know this for sure, but when it comes to the types of doubt, um, was his merely factual, or was was there emotional doubt going on? Or yeah, I would say his was chiefly factual, which is probably as nearly as I can tell from interviewing people. For the longest time, I kept a chart of all the people I talked to, hundreds of of cases and I would I would put factual doubt at maybe the 15 percentile mark that mm. those who are uh, that are predominantly you we can be parts of all three but predominantly factual doubter mm -hmm. I'd say yeah it's relatively rare however even in his life he had some things going on that in my estimation made him a bit of an emotional doubter mm. okay. some some things that I mean, it's not anything I'm going to talk about, but sure. I mean, things that caused me to realize he was where he was because of certain influences in his life from people who that he cared about Okay, in that... his life. So, yeah, and, you know, by the time he died, um, just a few years, about a half dozen years after he announced that he became uh, uh, a... a, a a believer. Now, I mean, a believer in God. Mm -hmm. He knew the gospel. He knew. One time, he said to me that his biggest objection was uh, whether there was a hell. Okay. And <laughs> we were good enough friends. I literally said to him, "I said, what do you? What worries you so much about it?" And he said, "Well, I I don't like the view that says God could dangle somebody over of a, a pit." a fire and call that uh moral hmm. and i said <laughs> i said tony that's not you know that that makes for scary movies and things sure. but but in fact i just i just read just recently received a book from maybe the most conservative publisher in this country um like an encyclopedia of uh, heaven and hell and the book said the majority view among evangelicals is that C.S. Lewis's kind of hell mm. is the favorite view, that hell is separation from God, characterized by anxiety and depression, and not a, not a good place to be, mm -hmm. but not being dangled over the pit of hell. And I told him that. I said, Tony, if you want to read a book, read the book, Four Views on Hell, published by Zondervan. Yeah. I said, it's a, yeah, it's good, a great book. Good, you know, good book. And, he, and I said, he goes, yeah... I know, that's thoughtful. He said, I might be able to read that. He goes, I just don't like that view of being dangled over hell. And I said, Tony, we've <laughs> talked about this. And I literally said to him, I said, you don't want to go there because you have the wrong notion of it. Hmm. That's and I good. think that kind of stopped him for a second. He went, I know, I know, but I, I have no evidence that he ever, you know, checked it out. Sure, hmm. man. Well, that is such an awesome experience you've had with, with uh, being able to witness yeah, to he, him and, and, and help him come to, to see who yeah. God is. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, he was just just a, a, really, good, a really good person, I will just add. He, he became a, an atheist in his teens, hmm. and what a lot of people don't know is that his father 
was an evangelical pastor. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, and he used to say that his father was the first, or one of the first, uh, people, non-Anglican, who got, a, I think, a, a Ph.D., some, some species of doctor's degree, hmm. from Cambridge in New Testament theology. Oh, wow. He said his dad was one of the only non-Anglicans in England to get that degree. And I said, um, you know, I used to ask him questions like, well, how uh, how old were you when you let your dad know you were an atheist? Mm-hmm. You know, things like that. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, he wasn't always sure. He'd go, well, I'm not sure I told him. I, I think he just probably found out by the things I was reading <laughs> the way I was talking. Oh, man. Yeah. And he grew up in he grew up in Cambridge too in the city. So okay. so uh, I mean he's right there and you know the center of of today uh you know Cambridge is more conservative than Oxford in a mm-hmm. lot of religious things and yeah. uh he was right there and his dad and and uh he somehow went off the you know deep end over the problem of evil and related things. Man that is fascinating. It, it it's so interesting to me because when I I remember when when he came out saying he was a theist and it was it was shocking to me because you know during that time I was reading Christopher Hitchens and I was reading Richard Dawkins and these these prominent atheists who were so angry yeah. at God. And Anthony Flew, yeah. if you read his stuff, it's a totally different flavor than that. He's not yeah. uh, mad at the Lord. And so just the idea of volitional doubt, it seemed like, you know, the the atheists, the new atheists, as they're called, were just really angry uh, about something yeah. that had happened to them. And, yeah, Anthony Flew, he didn't seem like that at all. He seemed like he was in a different category. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think you're really right. And, and um no, he wasn't, from anything I could tell, he wasn't angry. I never heard him lash out at... Now, once in a while, he'd make comments about hell. Hell really bothered him. Mm. But he didn't, like, you know, like, start screaming at, you know, why is God letting this happen? I'd say, well, mm-hmm. Tony, God's not letting anything happen. I mean, that you know, that's your perspective. Well, anyway, I never had a chance to say that, because he never said that kind of stuff. Okay. He, uh, I never heard it, and I spent a lot of time with him. Uh, whenever we could, yeah. and uh, we we had the three debates. We also dialogued a couple times. I interviewed him once in Oxford, where um, for the group that was there, I interviewed him with his uh, concerning his conversion. Okay. To the to theism, uh, he called it a conversion. So you know, there's more than one kind of that he become a believer. Well. All I can tell you is that I we talked about the gospel many times, but he called it a conversion from atheism to theism. So, yeah. we had those discussions, and and he was I he is also his mentality. I should tell you was always such that I don't think he would say anything like striking out against God in anger, that kind of blow up kind of thing. By the way, though, you're talking about the new atheist being a different breed and being angry. Um, I just was reading a debate recently. I won't identify because I don't want to put anybody uh, down, but it was a debate between a well-known uh, evangelical um, New Testament scholar and a an atheist on uh, resurrection. Mm-hmm. And it was very kind. It was a very kind dialogue. But the atheist said, this is just so amazing, the atheist said, I'm not like most atheists who are really angry at God. <laughs> so, so even the atheist was aware of that attitude yeah. that you're that you're discussing. 
Yeah, he recognized it. Well, it's, it's true, and that's that. You know, that's been a joke for a long time. Is you know that that the new atheists don't believe in the God, don't believe in God, and they really hate him. You know, <laughs> that's kind of the the yeah. self defeating uh, conclusion you come to with those guys. So that's interesting. But yeah, everything yeah. I've seen about uh, uh, Anthony Flues is completely different than that. Well, hey, he was. Uh, yeah, that that is man. What a cool opportunity God placed you into to to talk with him, debate with him, oh, yeah. and and are some of those debates online? Can people go on YouTube and, and find some of those debates? Well, I bet you they can. Now, okay. I don't. I don't post things on YouTube myself. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, somebody will write to me, and they'll say, "Hey, I watched that debate that you have with Liberty uh, at Liberty University." Okay. And they said, "You know, you didn't even have a beard in those days." <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. You know that kind of stuff. You yeah. were really young. Yeah, I was. I used to be young. <laughs> yeah, I guess it happens to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> anybody could uh i've people have showed it to me enough that i'm okay. sure it's there people it's out there somewhere it yeah if you look it up I in bet fact, you could i'll find bet it. you all three of them are around okay and hmm. i can tell you this too all three of them have been published in books oh okay wow form. okay nice that's great so, well that'd be an awesome resource for our listeners to go check out and, and see these great debates or get yeah. the books and, and read them so hey uh, right and by by the way before we get uh too far here um on my website, GaryHabermas.com, there's a lot of material on doubt. I actually have done three books on the subject of doubt, and two of them are available for free on my website. In fact, everything that's on my website, I don't sell anything there. Hmm. But uh, the third one, I'd like to get up there. It's a, it's a, um, the first one is a theoretical book, called, more theoretical, called Dealing with Doubt. And uh, it came out in 1990. Then the book you're talking about, The Thomas Factor, what was that, 98 or something like that? Mm-hmm. And it's almost totally on emotional doubt. And then just a number of, just a few years ago now, I did a book on what to me is the most common sub-question of doubt that I get. Um, and it is the question that we often call in philosophy, the silence of God. Why okay. won't God talk to me? The Bible says always do this, 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 and this, and your prayers will be answered. Well, I've very carefully done this, 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 and this, and my prayers are never answered. Hmm. And, I mean, just to give you one example, they often go to John 14 to 16, and three times in those chapters, there's promises, do this, this, and this. One of them is pray in my name. Mm -hmm. Um, Do this, and anything you answer will be answered. Well, what they don't tell you, because we don't teach this way, we teach to memorize these great verses, learn these great things. We don't tell you that three times in the same three chapters, Jesus said, you're going to have issues. Yeah. He, he says once, they're going to persecute you. Once, he says, they're going to kill you. <laughs> well, you know, and you, I, can, I tease with people when I'm talking, and I'll say, yeah, and, and you're going to say, well, oh, I get it. You're testing me. Okay, so if I pray in your name, then I won't be persecuted, right? No, that, I mean, you know, the three times in those verses, do this and you'll, you know, have what you pray for. Mm-hmm. And three times, you're going to have problems in this world. So which is it? Uh, both. <laughs> yes. We should pray, and we will get answers, and we should be ready to deal with these things. Yeah. And, uh, of course, the very next chapter, chapter 17, uh, Jesus says, "There have my believer, you know, my believers, he's praying to his Father, and he's saying, my 
the believers are going to have problems in this world. Mm-hmm. But I ask you, you know, he's not praying that the Lord keeps them from uh, Satan. He's praying that God will go with them and take them through their struggles, mm-hmm. not just abandon them in their struggles. And mm-hmm. I think that's a lot of it. It's So anyway, the silence of God, it's called, Why is God Ignoring Me?, that's the third one. Now, That's they can great. look for that wow. one. It's out there somewhere. But the first two are online uh, on my... Um website and they're free. Yeah, I actually that's where I got the Thomas Factor. It was probably like 6 years ago. I downloaded it off of your website. Did you? And, yeah, I did. Good for you. I'm glad it's I'm glad it's being used. It is being used. Yeah, <laughs> it's such a great resource. So I really really oh, appreciate that. Well, hey, um as we end here, we uh so our, obviously our podcast is called Christ Culture and Coffee. And so one of the things we always do is we talk about different coffee tips or how to roast beans a certain way or recipes. But when we have guests on, we like to ask them about coffee and if they like it and what kind they like. So Dr. Habermas, do you, you like coffee? I love coffee. Amen. There's almost <laughs> nothing I'd rather have. In fact, I've had a cup right next to me while we've been talking. <laughs> that's great. I knew you and, liked uh, it because you're yeah, a Christian, yeah. so that's good. What, what's that last thing? I knew, I knew that you liked coffee because you're a believer in Jesus, and so they kind of should go hand in hand, I think. I think that's probably pretty close. I thought you'd say the other way around, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe maybe coffee means you're a Christian. I don't know. Yeah, but, you never uh, know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you never know, yeah. So yeah, how I do know, you... I love it. I think it's a... It's a good way to have a talk. It's a good way to have an interview. It's a good way to do about anything. Yeah, amen. And how do you drink it? Do you drink it black? Do you like cream in it, flavorings? I like cream. I don't like flavored cream. Okay. And I don't like sugar. So. Nice. I'd say black with non-flavored cream, and mm-hmm. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you my one coffee lesson I learned a few years ago. Okay. My favorite is dark and bold coffee, strong. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I go to a coffee shop, we have local ones here in town, and I'll usually say, uh, what do you have up? What's your strongest coffee you have up? And they'll tell me what it is, and I'll say, and how many uh, free espressos will you put in there? And it's either <laughs> two or three. So I take the strongest coffee they have up and two or three shots of espresso with it. Oh, man. Okay. Well, then someone said to me, why do you need it like that? Why? Just, I like the taste, but I also yeah. want to stay awake. And they'll say, that's not the best way to stay awake. Well, what is? And someone said to me once, they said, um, your less brewed coffees have more caffeine. I said, you're kidding me. So they sent me a website from from a uh, major research Mm -hmm. place, and what it said was, yeah, that's true. And, you know, I have friends who say, well, I get plenty of caffeine. I take tea. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a joke. You should have looked it up on the chart. The tea, (laughs) it said 40 milligrams of caffeine for tea and 200 for coffee. Oh, okay. And I thought, well, okay. But then I learned that the the fellow was right. The lesser brewed coffees had more caffeine. So every morning, here's what I learned. Every morning, I mix. I make two cups, and I mix the boldest, strongest coffee I can find with one of the medium or light or medium flavorful coffees that have more caffeine in it. Okay. And then the compromise to me, I mix them. I mix oh, that them makes together. Sense. Yeah. And then I have two cups, and I think this is not only going to be the taste I want, but it's going to keep me awake. 
Oh man, that's great. <laughs> that's a great coffee that's tip. All I yeah. need it. I need it because I'm doing a magnum opus on the resurrection. I've been working on it for five and a half years. Huh. It is over 4,500 pages long, wow. and I work about 85 hours a week. So man. if I don't start my day like that, I probably won't make it through the day. <laughs> no kidding. Hey, I've heard wow. a lot of you know a lot of rumors and a lot of people getting excited about your magnum opus that's coming up. <laughs> when is it coming well, out? Do you have a date? Well, I probably have another year to write. I, okay. I'm Okay. Probably going to be very close to five thousand pages. Wow! wow. I, I was. You guys know probably know the name Craig Keener, the New yeah, Testament scholar. Sure. Craig called me um, probably two months ago, and we were talking. And I said, "Hey, Craig, I just did some checking, and I understand that your Acts, your four volume Acts commentary, is five thousand pages long." <laughs> yeah, Gary, something like that. I don't, I don't total those pages, but you're probably about right. I said, "Well, Craig, let me tell you where I'm going." My goal, when I grow up, I want to be just like you, Craig. And <laughs> I want my, my MO on the resurrection to be 5,001 wow. pages long. So I can say it was longer than the, than the book of Acts for Craig Keener. And he just, he just blew up on the phone. You go get him, Gary. You beat me. You go beat me. Go, go for it. And that's how we ended the phone call. Oh, that's awesome. Right. Yeah. But well, it is true. I am doing it. That's so exciting. Oh, wow. I can't wait to read it. Uh, your stuff I on the resurrection. I can't wait to read it. I can't wait, I can't wait to be done. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, keep drinking all that coffee. That'll, that'll get you through thanks, for guys. sure. Well, hey, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, yeah, this has been, you. man, this is like a dream come true, honestly, talking with you and hearing uh, your, your thoughts on doubt and what God's done with you and your life through doubt and, and with Anthony Flew. So thanks so much for being with us today, Dr. Havins. Hey, I enjoyed it, guys. Good questions, good fellowship. And, and too bad we're not sitting here with a cup of coffee on our hands. Yeah, Hopefully yeah. sometime we could do that. We'd love to have you on again sometime uh, to talk about the resurrection and, and maybe to talk about the Shroud of Turin, too. I've heard you on that, and um, that is just mind-blowing. It is. It is really something. Some people call it a photograph of the resurrection. By the way, the tables have turned. The research has turned recently, and it's really one of the top guys has just come out just today and come out with uh, uh, some new essays and evidence on the shroud. So I just say stay tuned because uh, the data is not what you expect. Oh, man, wow. that's great. So. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. That's great. Yeah, we'll definitely have All you right, back guys. again. All right, well, thanks for being with problem. us today, Dr. Habermas. Thank you so much, guys. Yep. No problem. We'll talk to you again soon, all right? Okay. All right, bye-bye. Well, thank you for being with us today on Christ, Culture, and Coffee. Um, I hope you enjoyed talking with Dr. Habermas. This has just been a great uh, conversation. And please go check out his website, GaryHabermas.com. Again, there are a lot of free resources on there that you need to check out. Uh, I would suggest reading anything by him because it, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. please do. Please do. Also, uh, make sure you go on our Facebook group and uh, join our Christ Culture and Coffee Insiders and like us on Instagram too so you can uh, continue to see and hear uh, what we're doing and uh, all of our updates and stuff will be on there. But thanks for being yeah. with us today on Christ Culture and Coffee and we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to Christ Culture and Coffee. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to help us reach more people.